you guys have a Bible, go ahead and uh, get to Romans 8. Um, we're going to be in verses 31 through 39, um, and I'll go ahead and turn there too. Um, so if you're just joining us, we are currently about to wrap up a series um, on Romans 8 called All This Glory. Um, and this is, this is a series that I'm, I'm super excited about, I'm super excited I get to, to, to preach the last eight verses um, of Romans 8 tonight. Um, this is a passage that's changed my life, um, and I think that if, if you'll really tune in, um, you'll really just open your heart up that it'll change yours too. Uh, so, so, just to catch those of us up to speed, because we had spring break in between now and the last session. Um, so, so far, uh, Dustin, in the first week, has shown us what explosive gospel logic looks like. Uh, and by doing that, he pointed out how we fight the battle against sin uh, from victory that Christ has already won. And how, if we are in Christ then we are now free from condemnation and we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And then in week two, Luke showed us how the fearful slaves become adopted heirs of God through Christ um, and how the sin-killing life will cost us everything. Uh, it will cost us more than we could ever imagine, um, but it is worth more than we could ever imagine. Um, and then in week three... Nate showed us uh, how the hope of glory that is coming outweighs the present sufferings that we experience right now. And then before spring break, Dustin showed us these three promises. That the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will help our weak prayers. That if you belong to Jesus, all things work for your good. And that the foreknown will be glorified. All of which is possible only through the gospel. And so tonight... Our goal is to just celebrate. Um, we're going to leave here hopefully just excited about the gospel, excited to go into the campus, um, and, and just trusting and resting in Christ's finished work in our place and the guarantee that we have of an eternal relationship with our Heavenly Father. Uh, and so I've titled this message tonight, Gospel Reality Check. Uh, and the reason I did that is because if we are going to live on mission, we're going to see every person and every major on Marshall's campus have a chance at responding to the gospel. Um, if Campus Collective is going to continue to grow, to be healthy, um, to thrive, then that's only going to come by the continual reliance on Christ and His gospel, and by preaching that to ourselves and preaching that to each other. Um, so if you guys would, bow your heads with me and pray real quick. Father, Holy God, Lord, we come to you tonight just asking to hear from your word, Lord. Um, we need reminded of the gospel. I pray that, that the word, Lord, would speak loudly than, than my limited human words. Uh, that you would overcome any mistakes I might make. Uh, and that, that you would just move me out of the way, Lord, flatten me flatten all of us that come up here on this stage tonight, Lord, so that, that the message that people leave here is, is just glorifying you and trusting you, um, savoring in the gospel, just stepping into the reality that you provided us through your Son. Um, so, Father, we need you. We're hungry. We're desperate. Please, please, tonight, just feed us with your word. We love you. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so I just want to read 
31 through 39 really quick because I think it works best if you hear it as one big swoop. Um, so starting at verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Paul starts off here in verse 31, uh, and his first question to us this evening is, what then shall we say to these things? What is our response, if you've been here with us through Romans 8, what is our response to the realities that Paul has laid out, the gospel realities? What is our response to what we'll hear tonight? And I think that it's appropriate to say that we could respond in one of three possible ways. One is that if we are in Christ, our response can be to either continue living our lives in fear and anxiety, letting these realities just remain empty head knowledge and never internalizing them, letting them settle in and change us. Two, we can internalize these realities by continually preaching the gospel to ourselves and to each other and find the peace and the rest that comes by continually day by day, to trust in Christ and who He is and what He has done. You've heard it said up here probably a lot of times, it's Dustin's favorite catchphrase, is that Jesus is not a concept. Um, and so my question for you tonight is, is the gospel a reality for you? Is Jesus a reality for you? Or is it just a concept? third possible response I think we could have is that if you are out of Christ, then you should examine yourself and you should be asking yourself tonight, why are you still rejecting this? Why are you still rejecting the glorious gospel realities of Romans 8? Or that you've heard preached to you from, from your friends, from your loved ones. What is keeping you tonight from responding to the life-altering reality of the gospel? And so Paul's conclusions at the end of this chapter, they come in the form of, of some questions. And as we, as we go through these questions, uh, I just want you to, to let these, these be declarations. Um, Paul is, one commentator says that, that the tone Paul uses here is defined. Um, these, he's declaring these truths because the gospel should be our battle cry against the forces of darkness. The same theologian says this. Paul hurls these questions out into space. 
defiantly, triumphantly, challenging any creature in heaven or earth or hell to answer them or to deny the truth that is contained in them. So, so let that be our frame tonight. That is, as we read these, these are not just empty truths. This is our battle cry against the forces of darkness. This is our declaration to the universe that our God is big and that He has saved us and that He is with us and He is for us. Which leads us into, into Paul's first question. If God is for us, who can be against us? And just in short there, I think the idea Paul's getting at is, is that you can be bold because the gospel is true. Uh, when I was little, uh, probably like seven or eight, we lived, um, since it's West Virginia, I guess it's not really a neighborhood, it's a holler, uh, like way out in the country, but it was like, a, it was a rough place. Um, there was a lot of like crime, drug activity, um, it was a really scary place to live. Um, and one night, a car drove through our yard, and the dude got out, and he was intoxicated, and freaked my mom out, freaked me out. Um, and after that, it was really, really hard to sleep. Um, every night, I, my dad worked midnight shifts, and so I would just lay awake in my bed, waiting for my dad to get home. I would just, I would wait until I would hear the roar of the truck engine at the end of the road, and then I knew everything's okay, dad's coming. But then I wouldn't fall asleep until I heard the sound of his tires crunching the gravel and heard him pull into the driveway, shut the truck off, and shut the door because I knew my dad was the biggest, baddest, toughest guy in the neighborhood and that there was nothing out there that could ever come against me because my dad was coming in my house that night. and He was with me and daring anyone to come through the door. Think about your heavenly father how much greater he is than that. Isaiah 46, 9-11 says this. And this is, this is just a small snippet of who this God is that is for us. Uh, it's up on the screen. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it, and I will do it. There is no other being in the entire universe that you could want to be on your side than the holy, powerful, completely perfect all-knowing, all-wise, ever-present creator who spoke the world out of nothing. Like, let that sit in. That that's who God is. God is not just a concept that we come and we, we talk about out of a book. God is alive. He's active. He's real. This God who holds all the power and the authority in the entire universe who could crush us under the weight of His holiness, has apart from any human influence chosen to be for us and to provide for us a means of salvation from the sins that separate us from Him. And that means is Jesus Christ. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 
So our question has to be to ourselves. If God's for us, who can be against us? And, and we'll see as we go throughout this chapter that there is literally, and I mean literally, nothing to fear. There's no opposition, human or supernatural, that stands a chance against our God. And our enemy, the devil, he may tempt us, he may accuse us, he may bring fear in our hearts and cause us to start to tremble, but God himself is on our side and God will have the last word. Psalm 27.1 says this, The Lord is my life and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? So as we, we go out on the campus, we go out with this, equipped with this gospel, this hope, we're going to face opposition. All our lives, as we live on mission, we're going to face opposition, whether it be supernatural or whether it be human. But there's no opposition that can stand against God. There's nothing man can do to us because of who our Father is. He Himself is for us, and He will protect and fight for His children always. But, there's a warning to this reality. And you can't let this be lost on you. This is very serious. Those who reject Christ continually will find themselves crushed by His wrath against sin on the final day. God is for you. He is so for you, and He loves you so, so much that He sent His Son to die in your place. Jesus, God in the flesh, the perfect God-man, died in your place because God is for you. And if you continue to reject this, then on the last day, you will rightly be treated as God's enemy. That is the reality that we have to grapple with. And it should be sobering. So verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So the big idea we can pull out of this verse is that the cross is an objective reality that was accomplished by God through Christ that reassures us of God's commitment to His glory and our good. And if you look at the, at the way Paul words this question, um, especially the second half, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Um, he, he asks this in kind of a, a matter-of-fact way. Um, like if, if somebody talks to you in a matter-of-fact way, they, ask, they say something matter-of-factly, they ask you matter-of-factly, it's kind of like, Duh, like this is a no-brainer, like this is a given. So, so do you see Paul's logic here? Do you follow that? The logic is, is that if God went to such great lengths as the cross to redeem us of our sin and glorify himself by giving up Jesus in our place, then surely everything else we need for our salvation in our lives is a no-brainer. And that means that everything that happens in our lives, the good or the bad, is working itself ultimately for God's glory, and if it's for God's glory, then it is our absolute best good. 
So the most important thing in all of existence. I know in, in our culture we like to say uh, there are things that I, I just can't live without. I just can't live without. Food, I just can't live without. Social media, I just can't live without. Friends, the, the only actual thing that you cannot live without, the most important thing in all of existence, is salvation from your sins and restoration to a relationship with a holy God. And God made sure that that was possible. He didn't hold a thing back. Look at this. He who did not spare his own son. He didn't just half measure his wrath and condemnation on Jesus on the cross and then save some for you later. He did not spare Jesus. He poured out every bit of wrath and punishment we deserve on Jesus. And if God didn't hold that back, the most important thing we could possibly need, then you can rest your head at night and be assured. You can take it to the bank that He knows and He will take care of every single thing that you need in this life. He's done the greater and He will do the lesser. And it may not be the way you think it should be, because if you look at the cross, which doesn't make a lot of sense to a human perspective, He knows far greater than what you truly need. So just one more passage to, to illustrate this point. I'm not going to read it because um, it's kind of lengthy, but I'll summarize it. Uh, it comes from Matthew 6, 25-34. And in this passage, this is Jesus talking to His disciples. And He's commanding them to not be anxious because God takes care of the grass and the birds. The grass and the birds are not made in God's image. Human beings are. You are made in His image. And He sent Jesus to die for humans. And if He takes care of the grass and the birds that aren't made in His image, but He sent Jesus to die on the cross for you, and He didn't die on the cross for them, then you can bank on the fact that He will take care of you. Who He has gone to the greatest lengths possible for. If God saw fit to crucify His Son for your sins, you can, you can rest, state everything in your life on it that He is going to take care of you. There is nothing outside the realm of possibility for Him to do for you, to take care of you. It may not be the way that you, in, in our minds that we think we need, but He knows, and He will take care of all of the little problems in our lives that we can't see any way around that we have no idea how, because he's accomplished the greatest problem in our life, through the cross. So verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So the short answer would be just to say that, that no, one, no one can bring any charge against us. Because if we're in Christ, then all of our charges have been applied to him. And this means that you can't sing your way out of God's love. And nothing that Satan accuses you of is grounds for separation from God. Why? Because God himself has laid out the demands of justice on sin. Death. God has declared that sin deserves death. He has laid out the righteous <coughs> law that those who break it deserve to die. But not only did he lay it out, but he satisfied it through Jesus this God that is for us has satisfied His own demands on the cross. And this, this goes against a really 
popular argument, especially on a college campus, um, especially among intellectuals who would try to paint God as, as unfair or as cruel or as unloving. A lot of times we'll hear the question of, of why would a good God send people to hell? Why would a good God send people to an eternity of separation from Him? But that shouldn't be the question. The question should be, why would this good God meet His own demands of justice for the rebels who have sinned against Him and treaded on His glory daily? You have to know tonight that you are not justified in any way by what you bring to the table. If you're here tonight and you're in Christ, God called you and He justified you by Jesus' blood. The one with all the authority to judge has spoken and He has declared you justified and no one and nothing can undo this. So it deserves saying again that you can rest assured at night. You don't have to wrestle with this anymore. That if you have placed your faith in Christ, you are completely justified by His perfect sacrifice. That means that nothing in your past, nothing in your present that you're struggling with, and nothing in your future can come up as a charge against you because your sin was paid for by Christ's blood. So verse 34 is kind of a little bit of the same. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? So the, the reality of sin, sin is not something to take lightly. The reality of sin is that it is worthy of condemnation. And therefore, because we have sinned, we are worthy of condemnation. But, the reality of the gospel is that Jesus stood condemned in your place. And he took the full measure of the wrath you deserve. And I know it sounds like I've said that like 500 times tonight, but that's because that is the gospel and that is the most important thing you can leave here tonight knowing is that Jesus has taken the full wrath that you deserve for your sin. But Paul goes one step further. He says, more than that, who was raised? Jesus didn't just stay dead. Jesus was raised on the third day as a sign that his sacrifice on our behalf was perfect and accepted and sufficient. And then he goes another step further. Who indeed is interceding for us. Now that Jesus is alive, now that he's resurrected, he is currently alive right now at God's right hand where he is interceding for us. <coughs> So we need to unpack that term interceding just a little bit. So 1 John 2.1 um, says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the other most, those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the idea, we learned about the Holy Spirit a couple weeks ago when Luke was interceding for us. Uh, or actually, it was when Dustin preached. Uh, groaning on our behalf. Groaning for us things that we don't even know to pray for. And we have no words. Uh, 
Another step of intercession is that Christ is interceding for us. So since he's alive right now, and since he's at God's right hand, he is pointing to his death on the cross in the place of your sins. This is active. He's doing this. He didn't just die once. He did die once. Excuse me. He died once, but it wasn't that that death was it, and now you're on your own for the rest of the sins. Like That death was okay enough for some of the sins, but not all of them. He is alive right now, and when you sin, when you screw up, he is your eternal defense. Satan, who is the accuser, would hold your sins over your head, and he would assert that you deserve to die because of God's justice. But Jesus is our perfect high priest. He's paid our sins with his sacrifice, and he continually points to that sacrifice over and over as sufficient payment. So not only is he our high priest, but he is our judge. And as we saw in the last verse, the judge has justified us. So he is our judge, he is our high priest, but he is also our savior. The one with all authority on heaven and on earth has declared you free if you are in him. And this means that you can go about your life and you can live with the full assurance that if you're in Christ, you will not be condemned because Jesus has fully taken the condemnation and he is continuing to intercede. Don't miss that. He's continuing to intercede for you. So if you're here tonight and you haven't put your faith in Christ because you think, I'm just too messed up. I, just, I can never do that. Uh, God doesn't know what I've done. God does know what you've done, and Jesus has taken the full punishment for all of your sins so that you don't have to clean your act up before you come to Him. And if you are a Christian, that means that when you sin, run back to Jesus. You don't have to live your life locked up in guilt and shame and shackled by defeat and and hiding from your brothers and sisters and hiding from God. You don't have to do that anymore. You can throw yourself on the gospel and you can trust that he faithfully took all the punishment for your sins and that he's now interceding for you on the basis of what he did, not on what you have done. But, just like we said in the first verse, this also comes with a warning. Also very serious. If you're here tonight and you continually reject Christ, over and over until the final day when all of humanity will stand before the throne for judgment. You will have nothing to point to as your justification from the condemnation that you deserve. No good works, no good morals, no church attendance, no religious activities can atone for your sins. Only Jesus and His death is sufficient to cover everything. Verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famines, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I'm going to be honest. These two verses are super bleak. And at first glance, 
it seems like, where is God in this? Where is God in my suffering? Paul's point is that the suffering for our faith is a reality that believers face. It's not anything new, and it shouldn't come as a surprise to you when suffering comes. Because as we saw um, a couple weeks ago when Jake preached in Philippians 3, Paul's entire ministry was marked by constant suffering. So he, he poses the question that if any of these things is, can, can trouble, can suffering or distress or, or persecution or, or hunger or danger or nakedness or violence, violence that the sorts of violence possibly leading to death, is any of that, can any of that separate us from Christ? So be real with yourself. Um, you know you've gone there. When you're going through suffering, you're tempted to say things like, God must not love me. Or, where is God in this? Or, did, did I somehow lose my salvation? Um, why is this happening to me if I trust Christ? Just be real. I've gone there. We have to remember that the reality of following Christ does not take us out of the running for suffering. In fact, it guarantees us suffering. Following Jesus doesn't grant you a painless, easy, prosperous life by worldly standards. Jesus suffered, so we will suffer. Your life from a, from a worldly vantage point could look horrible to the people around you. It could look awful. It could look miserable to the vantage point of the world. But it's, it's in such a time as that that we have to preach the gospel to ourselves. When things look bleak and we think that God has forgotten us, we have to preach to ourselves the reality of the gospel, which Paul breaks through into who? In verse 37. He says this, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Paul's answer is emphatic. No. No, none of the horrible realities that you face in this life are enough to separate you from the love of Christ. That's the short answer, is it? No. So when you are going through suffering and you're tempted to despair or to give up or to question God's goodness, remember this, is that because of the gospel, your present reality is that the sufferings of this sinful, broken world work to make you draw closer to the love of Christ, not away from it. And they work to make you become more like Him. You will never experience eternal suffering because of what Christ has done on the cross. Rejoice in that. The sufferings of this life are temporary and they are meant now to produce fruit in our lives. They are meant shape us and mold us into the image of Christ. So, we can't ignore that Paul says here, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So somehow, we haven't just conquered suffering. Somehow, we have we've more than conquered it. We haven't just overcome it. Uh, 
So, so what does he mean? I, I think that John Piper does a pretty good job of explaining kind of what more than conquers means. So I'm just going to read it because he says it a lot better than I do. But what must happen in this conflict with famine and sword if you are to be called more than a conqueror? One biblical answer is that a conqueror defeats his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe. One who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. So the things we face in this life that are terrible, that are painful, that are hard, that, that can even result in our death, they are not the end of our, our relationship with Christ. They are not signs that His love has in any way come untethered from us. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, all suffering now is a means by which we look more and more like Jesus and we come to love the reality of the gospel deeper. Our sufferings become a means of sanctification for us. They are not our undoing. Whereas the rest of the world will suffer and will come apart and will throw their hands up and give up, our sufferings as Christians make us look more like Christ and teach us to see the deep realities of the gospel better. That means that you can go out into your life and you can face all boldness knowing that the God who is for you, who saved you on the cross, is in control of your suffering and He is sovereignly using it to grow you, to look more like His Son, Jesus. So verse 38 and 39, last two. <laughs> For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Paul's certain here. Paul is confident. And that means that we can be too. We can leave here tonight with full confidence, knowing that there is nothing in this life. There is not, not even death itself. That should blow us away, that not even death itself can separate us from our Savior. And there's no supernatural enemy. There's no current problem that you're going through. There's nothing future that's coming that you can see it looming on the horizon. There's no high of high when you feel like you don't need God anymore. There's no depth of despair and depression and anxiety. Nothing. And I, I think a literal translation of what Paul means here by nothing is nothing. Nothing will ever come between us and the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. There's no room for what ifs. There's no contingency plan. There's no worst case scenario because you are secure in God's love because of Jesus and what he's done for you. So the reality is, is that because of the gospel, you have a future hope if you are in Christ that you will never be separated from God's eternal love no matter what. No matter what comes, you will never be separated from it. So Van, go ahead and come on back up. If you're here tonight 
and you're in Christ, and you just you're questioning whether you've messed up too much for God to still love you. You have it. You need to hear that. You have it because of what Christ has done. Repent of what you need to repent of and trust that because of Christ and His finished work on the cross, your relationship with your Heavenly Father is secure forever. Internalize that. Preach it to yourself daily. And if you're here tonight and you're tempted to start doubting God's goodness in your suffering, look back at the cross. Remember that God is sovereign over suffering. And because of what Jesus has done there, that all suffering now works to make you more like Him. And then fight and pray for the faith to believe that He is for you. And so finally, if you're here tonight and you haven't trusted in Christ because you're just afraid that, that you, could, you, can't, you can't live that life, you can't get it together enough for Him to love you, you have to internalize this too. That God loves you so much that He sent Jesus so that by Him you would never, ever be separated from His love because of your sin.